Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, it's great to be with you today. We've got another Anchored episode coming at you here on Charting the Course featuring Ford Price. Ford is a co-founder and managing partner of Price Edwards here in Oklahoma City. The company, Price Edwards & Co., was founded in 1988 and as you'll hear, has really grown to become one of the most recognized commercial real estate firms in Oklahoma. Throughout the Oklahoma City and Tulsa offices, they manage roughly 175 office, retail, industrial, multifamily properties across the state. They have leasing or sales listings on another 300 properties. They've closed roughly $10 billion in real estate transactions. They also have in-house construction capabilities where they can serve as general contractor. Now, Ford is directly involved in just overseeing the firm's office and investment sales division. The firm itself has worked with some of the largest and most sophisticated clients across the U.S. during Ford's 40-year run here at Price Edwards & Co. A special shout out to my friend Ian Self for helping line this episode up. Appreciate you reaching out and connecting us. Ford, thank you again for your time. And to our listeners, I appreciate you following along. If there's anything we can do for you or any questions you may have based on today's episode, please let me know. I'll make sure we get some information to connect you to the right place. So here is my conversation with Mr. Ford Price. Ford, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you in the office. I thought we'll dive right in here and let's give everybody kind of an idea of your background, your education, what drew you to the Oklahoma City real estate market, and we'll go from there. So I appreciate you being here. Happy to be here. I uh, graduated from Cassidy High School in 76, then went down to San Antonio Trinity University, graduated from there in 1980. And in terms of the attraction to real estate, it was always curious to me when I would come back how the city would change. I'd see a building here, a new restaurant there, and I was just always intrigued with what are the dynamics right. behind how that happened, right. who made it happen, what are the economics of it, who are the players. So I was just always curious. And one of our close family friends is a guy by the name of Don Karchmer, who's one of the godfathers of Brickdown. And um, you know, I would talk to him about real estate off and on. And I graduated. And I was going to go back to graduate school, but I decided I would work for a year first. And so right. Don Karchmer got me an interview with a guy by the name of Chan Sweetser. And he's an old Boston guy. And he was brought here by a company called Spalding and Sly uh-huh. and was Chuck Wiggins' predecessor. And like we just talked off air, we just sat down with Chuck and he talked about that group. So what a full circle moment. Yeah. So Spalding and Sly was a great developer based out of Boston, had a D.C. office. And there was a relationship with a guy here in Oklahoma City by the name of Breen Kerr. Breen Kerr owned an office building downtown that became the bank first building. And so Chan was brought here to redevelop that and the numbers didn't work. And then he ended up going out to 63rd and Broadway Extension and identifying that as an office park location, which is now Broadway Executive Park. And so he kicked that off and then left Spalling and Sly in 78, started his own company. I went and had an interview with him, said, look, I'll just want to work for a year. I'll just do whatever you need me to do. You don't have to pay me much and I'm off to grad school. And Chan was like an 
MIT, Harvard grad. He was really bright. And so he said, great. And so I had a desk out in the hall by his office. <laughs> Guess it was a pretty small office at the time. And I was outside his office. I was outside the leasing guy's office. I was outside the construction guy's office. And I was outside the property management guy's office. So I had this kind of symphony around me yeah. of real estate at different aspects of real estate that I was listening to all day. And I was just this sponge and right. driving sweets are crazy, soaking it all in. And years coming to a coming to an end, I said, hey, Chan, just want you know, I think I'm going down to SMU. They got a master's in real estate down there, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, sit down. I want to talk to you. So I said, okay. He said, Ford, you know, I went to Harvard to get my MBA. I said, I'm well aware of that. And he said, I didn't learn anything about real estate at Harvard. And my guess is you're not going to really learn the real estate business at SMU okay. going to graduate school because that's just not how you learn the real estate business. You got to be in it. Right. And I kind of said, well, I, I still think I'm going to do it. And then he says, well, how about if I give you a $4,000 raise? So I said, okay, I'll stay. So it's $4,000 when I was 22 years old. Seemed like a lot of money. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's a 25% raise. I thought, yeah, this is great. So I stayed. And this was 1980-81, crazy time, boom time. Oil and gas is going crazy. Penn Square Bank days, all the stuff you've heard about and read about. And it was really quite the experience to okay. live through that. And I got thrown into the deep end of the pool and was overseeing some kind of five to $15 million office building developments that frankly, I had no business handling, but that's kind of the yeah. way it worked. And so it was a great, it was just a an, an very intense learning experience okay. and it was a great time. And I always tell young guys, half of life is learning what not to do. Sure. And the eighties were a great time to learn what not to do. From the beginning to the end of the 80s, I'm sure that was a learning experience. So we did some incredibly stupid things like started an office building that was 100,000 feet with no tenants, no equity and enough financing to just start it. Yes. You wouldn't do that today, That's right? That's a ridiculous like, yeah. idea. You can yeah. barely even contemplate doing that back in the 80s, but we did it with the idea that we'd find tenants once we started. It didn't quite work out that way, but we worked our way through it and it ended up being successful, sold it to an insurance company, made money on it, had a bunch of tenants. It ultimately went broke. So the insurance company that bought it sold it for 50 cents on the dollar right. to the records family, which is now Midfirst headquarters. So it was experiences like that you realize there's a way to do real estate and there's a way not to do real estate. Yeah. And you just hope the scar tissue, you know, heals. <laughs> it doesn't kill you. There were a lot of people that did not make it out of the yeah. 80s. From all the stories and everything you read, you're absolutely right. But how impactful was that for you as a young professional in the space? It sounds like that was a crucial building block and probably has helped guide some decisions now down the road, I would think. There's no question about that. And the situation at the Sweetshirt Companies had an interesting turn in that Chan, and again, you got to remember, this is before computers and okay. voicemail, even fax machines. So he has the assistant send out a memo to everybody, puts it on their desk that, hey, uh, moving back to the east, I'm leaving. Because the bloom was clearly off the rose in terms of commercial real estate development. And he knew that things were getting ready to take a really bad turn. And so I was this precocious, you know, I was the youngest guy in the office, but we had developed a very close relationship. So I walk into him, I go, Chan, what are you talking about? You're just leaving everybody hanging. You're leaving. What's going to happen? What are we going to do? And he said, well, I've already decided how we're going to do that. I said, what's that? He said, you're going to run the office for me when I leave. And I went, you got to be kidding me. He goes, nope, you're it. 
And so somewhere in the back of my mind, I barely even remember saying this. I said, how about if I just buy the company from you for a dollar? Because clearly you don't put any value on it if you're just blowing out of here. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, look, I'll make a stand and we'll either make it or we won't. You don't have to worry about it. Go do your thing on the East Coast and I'll take it from here and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. Right. It was like the next day he said, okay, let's do it. And so I took over this company that had $500,000 in the bank, was losing $50,000 a month. And it turns out there was a lawsuit regarding a building that had been built before I showed up and it leaked like a sieve. And so the main partner in it, a wonderful man by the name of Ben Shanker, owned it. And so he sued the Sweetsuit companies. Ben and I sat in a courtroom for two weeks on opposite sides. He had great legal counsel. I was assigned legal counsel by our insurance company, and I got killed, just blistered. And I've got this big number that I got to pay him back. And I said, you know what's going on? That was millions of dollars. And wow. he said, I understand. And so we negotiated a reduced number, and I paid him for 10 years. Really? And we became fast friends. Oh, and right. he died recently. He has, oh. he has a wonderful family, kids, and is just one of the favorite people I've ever known. And so we worked through it. And so that's how I got started in the real estate business really helpful to have all that background. So so then fast forward a little bit, fast forward a lot. When did Price Edwards and Co. begin to come about? Sure. You are now, you are one of the co-founders, you're now a managing partner of that firm, but let's, let's get into the early days of Price Edwards and Co. Well, so not very many people know this. So the whole idea of Price Edwards, his idea was it was done by Nick Preftakes. Nick Preftakes was an old Liberty Bank guy and he had taken over the company that was owned by Travis Henderson. Pat Henderson was the founder, the patriarch of the family, he had two sons, Travis and Mike. They worked together for a while. Mike went his own way. Travis ran the company. Travis had gone through some booms and busts, and here we were in another bust. And so he brought in Nick Preftakes from Liberty National Bank to take it over and run it. They were a very active developer of shopping centers, apartment projects, some office, but mainly shopping centers and apartments. Uh, and they had a property management leasing company called Southwest Property Management. So Nick went to Carl Edwards and said, hey, I got this company. I want somebody to run it besides my folks. How about we hook up? Carl goes, okay, we can talk about that. By the way, I have an idea. His name's Ford Price because I had gotten to know Carl in my Sweetser days because okay. he his business was raising equity, bringing in investors and securing debt. And so the Sweetser companies had projects where we joint ventured with Carl, where he would bring in the debt and the equity. So he and I got on different projects, spent a lot of time together working through issues. And so Carl approaches me and says, here's what Nick said. Here's what he wants to do. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And I said, oh, that sounds fine, Edwards, but I'm not working for you or Nick. And we're going to have to all be equal partners. And he said, that's fine. Okay. So long story short, Price Edwards originally in 1988 was Price Edwards Henderson. Was it really? Yeah. And so that was 88. And I won't go into the gory details, but it it was clear after a couple of years that the goals of the company were a little different. And so we negotiated a buyout of Nick's one-third interest. We're still very good friends, very collegial, no hard feelings, any of that. And so Nick left, took some of those properties. Price Edwards Henderson became Price Edwards and Company, and that was 1990, and off we went. And so that was really the genesis of Price Edwards. So from that point, did you start 
what maybe just from the Price Edwards days, that 1990 period of time, was it leasing, brokerage, property management? What was the first bread and butter that you guys had? You have a suite of services now at this point. It was originally primarily property management and leasing. We had leasing brokers handling the properties that we needed to manage and lease for clients. Our clients were almost universally institutions that had taken back properties via foreclosure. Really? So it was insurance companies, it was savings and loans. Many of the savings and loans went broke. And so that RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, had taken over those institutions. They and the FDIC just had these huge inventories of properties that they had to push through the system. So they needed somebody to take them over to operate them, to try to lease them up, and then get them liquid. And so those that was the composition of our clients originally. And we were doing apartments, office buildings, some industrial. How many, besides you two partners or co-founders mm-hmm. between you and Edwards, how many employees were there back in 1990? 75. Okay. And today, what are you guys at? It's double. About double. Okay. So let's get into a little bit of just, you know, you, you talked at the very beginning just about your interest in the real estate sector by looking around the, the city and, and seeing new buildings or new developments. How do you feel like, or what's your take on just real estate development? Because we have clearly had, I think both Oklahoma City and Tulsa has clearly continued to grow and attract new businesses outside the state and attract new especially here in Oklahoma City with all the redevelopment that's been done. We've had Gary Brooks on here to talk about First National. Then you can drive down and see the Omni, the convention center. In your opinion, what's the role that real estate development plays in the growth of cities like ours? Now we're really becoming a top 20, 25 metropolitan area. Yeah, it's really staggering to think. The last I saw was 20, it knocked up to 20. And I mean, it's just staggering to think. So I would really, you know, it's kind of the cart and the horse. And I would say that the MAPS initiatives, which we're now on number four, I don't know that people really appreciate how much money has been spent in the downtown area, for instance, and what that did for our downtown and how that has changed downtown. If we didn't have MAPS, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt we, you know, we were a receiver on First National Center and sold it to Gary. Oh, that's right. And thank God for Gary Brooks. I say wow. that almost every because we wouldn't have been able to sell it. He was the only guy that. Hey, well, he even said himself, he was the only guy dumb enough to do it. Well, <laughs> we had a few others that were on the list, but we wanted Gary to get it because he was the local guy that we trusted to really execute. But I mean, there is no way without maps and everything that had happened since then that Gary was going to step up and take that kind of risk to do that kind of conversion for that kind of money. And similarly, I would say the Rainbolts family, they were not going to buy the old Cotter Tower. I was involved heavily with that transaction. So I know all those numbers up close. I know the pain and agony of that project. And it's beautiful now. It was hard getting there. And to their credit, they just said, we're going to do this. And in part for their bank, for sure. But in part, I think they realized nobody else is going to be able to do it. I mean, there's only a few people that could probably, local groups that can probably come in and do that. And they were one of them. And Absolutely. I think they deserve a lot of credit for taking that project on. And now you have a beautiful new building. You have their signage up there. It it changed the look. Once again, changed the look of the skyline. And then you talk about Devon and their corporate headquarters. That's staggering. You look at all the thousands now of apartment units Mm -hmm. in and around downtown. That's staggering. You see the announcement this morning over in Bricktown where, you know, Hogan's trying to bring in these guys to do a big hotel and a bunch of apartments. And ultimately, if it doesn't happen, it's still amazing somebody's even trying. I would say the other thing that some people don't appreciate as much as they should is that we've been blessed in this town with what I'm going to call perfect trifecta. And that is we've had great city government. We had a fabulous city manager, Jim Couch, and now Craig 
We had a very pro-business city council. We had unbelievable mayors in Nora Humphreys, Cornette, and now Holt. They work hand-in-hand with the chamber. And so everybody's simpatico. And then you bring in the business community with them. And so between the business, the chamber, and the city, everybody's on the same page. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. Everybody knows where we're trying to get. And that has made a huge difference. And that 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 is a hard thing for any city to... Many would be envious of that relationship. Yeah. No question. Tulsa is in a pretty good situation, too. They, for many years, didn't have the same dynamic that we've had on that front. What What are some challenges that you see ahead? And it can be real estate, but maybe from your seat in that real estate role, what are some challenges ahead for our state? I think education is such an important aspect of what every state, obviously, oh, what yeah. our country. Yeah. It, it's a national. It's a scandal, frankly. Yeah. Just how so many kids are getting pumped through these through schools the and yeah. they're just not equipped. They, yeah. they, they don't have the skills. They're not at reading and math proficiency that they need to be in. And it's just year after year, these kids getting pumped out of these schools. I don't know if this school choice thing is going to work or not. I know it's going to get it's going to get litigated. But the whole school choice initiative is something that there's different flavors of it yeah, and different is. structures yep. to it. Yep. Generically speaking, it's certainly something that could help us. So education is one Two, I would say workforce. Part and parcel to the education is we're not cranking out enough STEM students. We have attracted a lot of aerospace-related industries, Tinker being our foundational driver of that. Boeing, Northrop, all of them, they're here. They will hire any engineer that comes out of school anywhere. I've even been told, we don't care if you have the right engineering degree. If you have an engineering degree, we'll teach you the rest of it, what you need to know. But we just need kids that are smart. And and so I would say workforce. These companies that are looking at Oklahoma, and there's more and more of them in our monthly meetings at the chamber, they talk about all the prospects, and there's a lot of them. Oklahoma City is on the map. And the first thing they ask is, are there people I can hire? And are they qualified? What do I got to pay? Who am I going to be competing with? My employees and all that. So the workforce is a huge issue. And then the last one I would say is, and this is a fairly recent phenomenon, it's ironic as, as big of a city geographically as we are. We need what I'm going to call a super site. We need a site that's a thousand acres of contiguous land with utilities to it, properly entitled, so that these large corporations who are looking to establish a presence right. here can just say, okay, there it is. You got the location. You got the utilities. You got the zoning. You got the school system. Check, check. We don't have that. And we, I don't know the details of it, but I do know that there is a Fortune 500 and perhaps even a Fortune 50 company looking at Oklahoma City. And they're saying, we got to have a thousand acre size. If we had, if we had that, or if we can go identify, if we had that, we have, we are on an absolute short list to be able to get them. That's really interesting. I've never thought about that. And, and you think about how we got 621 square miles of land. We've got plenty of land. <laughs> and yet we don't. And so, in, in terms of hurdles, that's going to be something we got to figure out. So we'll see. Those are great. That's a perspective I haven't heard. And that's really interesting. I think that also leads into some opportunities ahead. But I also would like to get your just take on in the real estate space from our seat at Full Cell as you know, we, we consider ourselves capital allocators. We're right. just allocating our clients funds across the board in ways that we feel like is efficient. We believe real estate is an efficient asset class and we do it through more private avenues. We're not buying a public read or anything like that. So I'd love to get your take on just real estate investing, maybe as an asset class, what your take on it is, maybe misconceptions about real estate as an asset class and where you see some real estate investors make the most mistakes because we will have conversations inevitably and I'll probably send them this podcast Mm -hmm. of, I just want to go buy or Scott Cravens, they'll call Scott and they'll say, I just want to buy a couple rent houses and he'll say, no, you don't. So 
it's just one of those common misconceptions. I think real estate can sound very sexy at times, but I'd love to get your take on just as an asset class, investing in it, some misconceptions around it. Yeah. I can't speak to rent houses, but I can speak to the commercial. Yeah. yeah. And it has not been immune to prices that were pretty stratospheric. Okay. Big picture, living in a zero interest rate world, I know you understand this, has inflated everything. There's some people who will say that every asset class has got to drop by 20 to 30% before the world is normal. Right. We'll see if that's right. But on the other hand, when people are desperate for yield, they'll do some things that maybe they shouldn't do. And it's not that they're not smart. No. It's just, look, I got to generate some yield here. And there's lots of stuff that was bought that was generating four or five, six percent returns, which meant they were paying a pretty big number for it. It was a great time to be a seller, for sure. Those kind of deals that were four or five and six are now seven, eight, nine percent returns because you can go buy a five percent money market with no risk. By definition, you got to get a higher yield out of commercial real estate and rightfully so because there's a much riskier proposition. Yeah, so many people just think, Oh, you know, inflation will bail me out. Time will make right. this all fine. And sometimes that works, but more often than not, it really doesn't yeah. commercial real estate work. Commercial real estate, what I'll call multi-tenant commercial real estate, okay. regardless of whether it's an industrial deal or retail or office or an apartment. It's all about what you're generating on income and how stable that cash flow is. What's the quality of your stream? Stability and quality has got to be Oh, important. it's huge. And then you get into what's the quality of the construction? What are the materials? You get into the design of the building. What are the floor plates? What are the ceiling heights? How well has it been maintained? How long are these leases? What's the credit quality of these leases? What are the specific lease provisions Mm -hmm. of each tenant in your building? Because there's a hundred little trap doors that can be in some of these leases where you go, oh, wait a minute. You mean that tenant can renew for the same rate 10 years from now that they had today? I didn't plan on that. Or I can't pass through operating expense increases of that tenant. Oh, I didn't realize that. All of which impacts income, all of which then impacts value. So, you know, you could literally have two office buildings across the street from each other, both 100% leased, and their values could be wildly different. And you have to understand the details of why. And so often we clients and they say, God, I really love that building. I really love that location. And you go, yeah, but here's what we need to find out. And then all of a sudden they realize, okay, it's not what I thought it was. Then our job is to go find them something that really does make sense for them. You got to know it inside out to really be successful and to be able to guide your clients in a way is to their benefit. What would you say locally and maybe nationally, where do you see maybe a slowdown taking place or maybe some opportunities presenting themselves? And I'm thinking more locally, is it retail industrial office, are we still having some issues filling office spaces? We just talked about attracting new businesses, but I know that vacancy was an issue or is always an issue. And then nationally, what are you seeing? What you and your team seeing just across the board? I just think that's an interesting perspective. Locally, so starting with office. Office right now has been impacted the most from the work from home phenomenon. And this situation is still very fluid. People are still trying to figure out. I was going to ask, are you seeing the occupancy increase or is it just depend on the company? Vacancy has increased. We've gone up from citywide from 23 to 25%. Okay. 25% is a lot of vacancy sure. in a town. Downtown's a little higher than the suburbs. The figuring out the work from home, even if you keep your tenant, they're probably going to reduce their space. They're probably going to reconfigure their footprint, which means you as the landlord, the good news is I get to keep them. The bad news is I got to go spend a whole lot of money to reconfigure their space, which kind of comes right out of your cash flow. And so it starts getting a little bit tricky on some of these deals. Retail, when COVID hit, everybody said, oh, retail's dead. Brick and mortar retail's dead. Yeah, you heard that a lot. 
Yeah, that's right. Nobody's going to go to a restaurant again. We're all going to have everything delivered. It's all about Amazon. Not so fast. Our retail vacancies actually have gone down in the last year from 11 to 7%. And so good retail, properly tenanted retail has really done much better than people thought. Now, there's some old, poorly maintained, not great retail that probably ain't coming back anytime right. soon. But take some it, capital infusion. Yeah. The industrial market, which is always kind of the sleepiest, slowest yeah, moving in this town. Sure. It's on fire. Vacancies are three and four percent. You want a hundred thousand square feet of industrial with a decent clear height ceiling, it's hard to find. I mean, because your point, and you know, I was driving up and down I thirty five last week and you're just seeing the increase in those, I call them the concrete slap up, those warehouse those type styles. Warehouse, but they're yeah. popping up everywhere. And if that's the case, that makes a lot of sense. If yeah. it's just like, well, if you can't go find it, if it's not already built, I got to go build it. No, that's right. It's actually hard to find a good industrial site at this point. Location, um, access. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the right part of town with the right access, right visibility, all the stuff. Uh, industrial is doing great. Our industrial brokers the last two years have been as busy as they've ever been and it's been great for them. It's starting to slow down now just because there's not that much product out there for lease. So yeah, the pipeline. What about nationally? So nationally, I would say it's the same kind of the same thing. Office is the most vulnerable, the biggest question mark. Everybody's trying to figure that one out. Retail, same. Industrial, on fire everywhere. I, I would say the difference is, unlike Oklahoma City, where you've got mostly local developers, local investors, and most of the financing is done. There's not the recklessness that you have seen in some other large cities. Again, I think that's people have learned what to do and what not to do. Conversely, in some of these other big markets, you're seeing some of these big players, RAITs, the Black Rocks, those kind of guys, buying up huge portfolios. And some of those groups are going to the securitized debt market where you can get much higher loan to values. Whereas a local guy might say, I'm going to do a 60, 65% loan, put in a bunch of equity, might even get it non-recourse where I don't have personal liability or my liability is limited because I'm putting up so much equity. A lot of these national guys, they're doing 85% securitized debt. And if they can, they might go get some mezzanine debt and put another 5 or 10% on that. They don't have much equity in it. Therefore, their levered returns, at least based on their pro forma, sure. are really good. The problem is, if, for instance, if an office building, your leases roll, you lose one of your big tenants, all of a sudden you're upside down. And I think there are many billions of securitized debt that is going to be maturing in the next 12 to 24 months. A lot of apartment debt, a lot of interest-only debt where they weren't even paying down principal. And all of a sudden. And so all of a sudden, <laughs> it's showtime. And a little bit higher. Are they going to, can they stomach the higher interest rate? What are they going to do? What's that look like? And so there there could be some pretty big assets that have to maybe get foreclosed and get. Repossessed. Yeah. yeah. And now there's still a lot of capital out there that is looking for exactly that kind of what I'll call opportunistic buy. Waiting for it. Waiting yep. for it. So it's not like. There's not a massive storm on the horizon. It's just you're saying there's some caution out there with some of that. Yeah. 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 It's like in your business, you look for when the stock market is hit bottom, when there is complete capitulation and people say, I never want to own another right. stock again in cash, my life. Cash, cash. That's right. And you're going, that's when I want to buy, be buying buy, buy. stocks. <laughs> right. It's the same in, it's in the real estate. When people are saying, my God, we've got, and there's a famous cover of Fortune magazine that back way back when they said we have enough office space. We never need to build another office building again. In in three years it was all full and people were off to the races again. So we may be headed to some of that in certain markets. Now in this market, I don't see it. Oklahoma City is really an outlier, I think, in so many ways hmm. for some of the reasons we've talked about here. It's generally very healthy. That's that's so cool. Good to hear. For as we wrap up, 
I'd love to just know maybe at this point of your career or as you look ahead even, what are you most excited about? Maybe with your company, personally, with the city or the state, like what is something that you would just be ecstatic to see or you're just excited about? As I mentioned a moment ago, I mean, Oklahoma City in particular, but Oklahoma as a state, we are really in an unbelievably unique position. You look at the in-migration into this part of the country. Who would have ever thought we would have all these people from California moving to Oklahoma and going, oh my God, I had no idea. This place is great. Cost of living is great. It's easy to get around. The infrastructure is in place. There's lots to do. We're a pro town with the thunder. People underestimate that. We are recruiting retailers. Think about this. In this day and time, you got Chisholm Creek out north. You've got the new development that is happening across from Penn Square, which is bringing in retail tenants that we've never had. Absolutely. You know, some of those retailers will not go to a city that doesn't have a protein. It's one of their stipulations. I mean, that's that is one of the boxes you have to check. People don't realize how much the thunder matters. So I guess what I'm most excited about is how far we've come, but yet we're so well positioned to just do so much better in the next 10, 15 years, which means we're keeping our young people. People are coming out of college going, you know what? I don't necessarily have to go to Dallas to have a great quality of life, or I don't have to go to North Carolina. Pick places where people would go. And so they're staying. And that is great for Oklahoma City. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. You know, my demographic or my age group, I do feel like there was more that were going to Denver, going to Dallas, staying regional, but it was still, I'm going to go to the bigger city. And now I definitely think you're seeing, whether it's med school, engineering, even finance and accounting, we have so many opportunities. And if we can entice them, because it is a much cooler city now than what it was. My wife and I joke all the time, we would have lived in Midtown or Downtown or Bricktown now, but that wasn't an option when we first got married. You wouldn't have done that. Right. Very exciting. Ford, anything we left out that you'd like to you'd like to add? It's interesting to me that your generation gets painted, I think, a little unfairly as one which doesn't work as hard as guys my age. I think that's a little unfair. Believe me, that we had some slothful people that were <laughs> my age back when. You know, you talk about impactful lessons. Nothing good is going to happen unless you're working hard. And I would also say reading, learning, never stopping that. I'm a big reader. Reading now involves podcasts, different forms of intellectual. But taking in that information. Yeah. There's so much information out there, much more than when I was in my 30s. I mean, there's just an opportunity to learn so much from so many people. And lastly, in our business, like your business, it's relationships. You just have to take advantage of great relationships from smart people. And one thing I really appreciated, and I think this is something I hope people take away from, is you were with different companies or with different groups. And you made it a point as you were talking that you have great relationships with all those individuals. There was never a, a hard feeling. Now, I'm sure there were some times where there's mm. tough relationships, but at least we're going back to the Sweetsers or going back to the Hendersons that buying him out. It was, we can do do this in a professional manner where we can still maintain a relationship. And I think that is something that I hope my generation can understand because I think we're, we can be a little bit more, no, I'm just going to look out for me. And so I'm well, glad you said that. And, you know, people perhaps don't appreciate how important a reputation is. It's, and yeah. this is, in so many ways, this is still a big, small town and word gets out. It does. It doesn't take long. And it does don't ruin it. That's right. So it's hard to build and easy to lose. Well, Ford, I really appreciate it. This has been a, a very interesting conversation. Thank you for the time and best of luck with you and, and everybody at, at Price Edwards. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. I've enjoyed it very much. Good. We'll do it again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week.
All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.